0: Hey, thank you so much for listening to the Big Time Talker Podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Burke Allen here in Washington, D.C., and the show is a service of SpeakerMatch.com. If you're a speaker or meeting planner, get together at SpeakerMatch's virtual marketplace and find one another at SpeakerMatch.com. It is absolutely my pleasure to welcome my buddy Charlie McCoy to the Big Time Talker Podcast. Charlie and I have West Virginia in common, uh, but boy, he's been all over the world since growing up in the coal fields, and uh, and we're going to talk all about that, Charlie. It's good to hear from you. Good to talk with you.
1: Thank you, Burke. It's great to talk to you. And uh, yeah, we're uh, we're I'm in Nashville, of course, now, and uh, and uh, it's summer has arrived. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> it is hot and sticky in Tennessee. Now, you were speaking yes, of hot it and is. sticky. You were yes, just a, a little kid when you left West Virginia for hot and sticky Miami. How old were you when you left Fayetteville and Oak Hill?
1: About nine.
0: Do you remember much about growing up in, in uh, the mountains of West Virginia before you moved?
1: Any yeah, Uh, I went to, I went to Fayetteville elementary school. Uh, uh, left, I left in the middle of the second grade to go to Florida. Uh, so it was, my my dad lived in Florida, and I was in, in elementary school. I was kind of an anemic kid. I spent 17 days in the Oak Hill Hospital for anemia. I mean, I had it bad. And my mom and dad got together and decided it might be better if I got out of the tough winters. Is so that right? Wow. I went to... Went to Florida and lived with my dad, but I missed West Virginia so bad that they agreed to let me come back. So I spent the third, all third grade in Fayetteville Elementary and half of the fourth. And, uh, well, it just, the weather, you know, and it, it so finally uh, went back to Florida and stayed there until 1960 when I moved to Nashville.
0: And when you were in, in Florida, I read that you actually led a uh, a rock and roll band back in sort of the early era of rock and roll, Charlie McCoy and the Agendas. What what can you tell yeah. me about the Agendas?
1: Well, uh, you know, uh, in addition to starting Harmonica at eight years old, that year at for Christmas, I started guitar as well. And then, of course, in the 50s, when rock and roll hit the radio... You know, I was all over that. And uh, uh, my dad said, he told me one day he would buy me an electric guitar if I'd promised to take lessons. And I said, when do I start? Nice. Nice. (laughs) And, you know, when the radio hit, Bill Haley and the Comets, uh, Elvis, Carl Perkins, you know, I was all into that. And then I heard. Chuck Berry. And man, I'm telling you, I was uh, all over that, tried to learn how to play guitar like him. And, uh, and so I was, uh, I was an aspiring young guitar player and a couple of my buddies, uh, said, Hey, let's form a band. You know, this is 1957, probably. So we started this band and it was this local record company in Florida called agenda records and uh the guy was uh he was fast talking guy and he said hey i'll get you on record you name your band the agendas uh, okay well <laughs> <laughs> uh my father uh he saw right through the guy and he wouldn't let us sign a contract with him so anyway i i, I kept the band until uh until I left to go to Nashville and uh, we played oh three or four days a month, you know, record hops and stuff like that.
0: I read somewhere uh, on the Internet, and you never know whether this is true or not, so I have to ask you if there is any truth to this. Was Johnny Paycheck the bass player in that band that you had in high no, school?
1: No, okay. In addition to the, uh, to the agendas, uh, I started playing on Saturday nights at a place called the Old South Jamboree okay which was which was a big square dance there in Miami, and uh, Johnny Paycheck was the bass player in that band at the time he went by the name Donnie Young, and uh, we also had uh, Bill Phillips, who later became the frontman for Kitty Wells and Johnny Wright. He was the singer in the band. Great singer uh fiddle player was named Charlie Justice. He ended up moving to Nashville, touring with uh, with uh, George and Tammy. Uh, Kent Westbury turned out to be an award-winning songwriter. He would sing there at the, the Jamboree from time to time. He went to Nashville, and he's in the Nashville Songwriter Hall of Fame. The guy's written, I mean, he told me the other day, he knew he'd, he'd written over 500 songs. And some big hits, Uh Love on a Hot Afternoon by Gene Watson. Uh, he had a song. Well, the first record I ever played on was a song he wrote called I Just Don't Understand, which was recorded by an unknown girl from Sweden named Ann Margaret. Wow. And the Beatles. Wow. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, so, and then, so Kent leaves, and all these guys are leaving. And I asked the boss man there, I said, where are they going? He said, They're going to Nashville. And I said, and I did I was listen, I didn't know anything. I said, What's in Nashville? He said, <laughs> The heart of country music. My job at this jamboree was to play rock and roll ten minutes each hour. Okay. So I still wasn't and I was I was enjoying what I was hearing, the country music, you know. And one night Mel Tillis comes in. And they, they were, there'd been a big package show that night at the Dade County auditorium. And after the show was over, they came over to our square dance because our square dance went till midnight and, uh, they came in and Mel Tillis heard me sing a Chuck Berry song and he's, he come up to me on the break and he said, boy, you come to Nashville, I'll get you on records tomorrow. Well, that was like showing a steak to a wolf. Sure. The day after high school, I went to Nashville, went to his office. It was actually the office of his publisher, Hall of Fame publisher, Jim Denny, and walked in and I said, my name's Charlie McCoy. I'm from Florida. And Mel Tillis said I should come see him. And the woman said, well, Mel's out of town. (laughs)
0: Uh Uh-oh.
1: Yeah. But, uh. And so I told her, she said, what's your name? And I told her, and I said, I'm from Florida. And she said, you know what? I'm going to let you talk to Mr. Denny. So Jim Denny came out. I had no idea who he even was, right? And he said, "Uh, Mel, told me about you. I couldn't believe it, you know. And he said, "Uh, you want some auditions? Wow. And I said, oh, yes. (laughs) You know, he'd never even heard me before. He set up audition with Chet. And Owen Bradley. Unbelievable. So, <laughs> I wish I'd have had a video. I'm in Chet's office singing Johnny Good, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said to me, well, son, I think you're pretty good, but, you know, we just don't do this kind of music here. So, So I, you know, walk out of there, I'm defeated, go to Owen Bradley's studio and do the same thing, and he says the same thing. Wow, Son, I think you're pretty good, but we don't do this kind of music here. So I'm thinking, man, I drove 900 miles. Uh, This is a waste of time. So I'm packing my stuff up, and he said, hey, I'm having a session this afternoon. Would you like to come watch? And, you know, to be honest, I wasn't even sure what a session was. I mean, I I figured it was some kind of recording. So I go back. That afternoon, there was a stairway at the end of the room. By the way, this studio was called the Quonset Hut. It's where zillions of Nashville hits were recorded. Okay. So I get there early. There was nobody there yet, just the engineer and uh, and uh, Owen Bradley. I mean, yeah, Owen Bradley says to me, "There was a stairway at the end of the st- at the end of the studio." He said, "Sit about halfway up those stairs." And you'll see what we're doing here. Okay, so I go up there and sit. I'm looking around. There's microphones. There's a drum set. There's a piano. Hey, there's no music stands. I'm troubled by this. <laughs> there's no music stands. Musicians start coming in. When you're 18, you know, everybody looks old. Sure. I'm thinking, God, look at these old guys. To be honest, they're only six, seven years older than me. You know, they were, they were in their 20s. Then comes the artist, 13-year-old Brenda Lee. Wow. And I'm thinking, this is just a kid. They're going to record this kid. Buddy, when I heard that first playback, my whole life changed because it was a wake-up call. I said, whoa, wait a minute. I don't want to sing. I want to do this. So I went back home and... And told my dad all about it. And he was kind of like, oh, okay, you're going to college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's
0: yeah. nice. That was a nice trip for a week, but now you're going to college.
1: Yeah, I'm going to college. So I did. I went almost a year to the university of Miami and studying music education. And I kept remember thinking about what I'd seen and heard in Nashville. Man, oh man. And toward the end of that school year. I'm thinking, I don't want to be a teacher. And I got a phone call from Kent Westbury. Hey, there's this young artist, got a regional hit, and he's got a big gig in Canada, and he needs a guitar player. Boy, and that was – so I debated, debated, and I finally hit my dad with that news, and, ooh, it did not go down well, believe me.
0: Yeah, I imagine.
1: Yeah, but finally – finally, okay. So, so Kent comes and picks me up, drives me back, drives me to Nashville. We go to the rehearsal, you know, and that was, remember in that days, there were no cell phones or anything like that. Right. Sure. And, uh, this is 1960 and we go to the rehearsal and he walks in and the guy, the artist, his name was Johnny Ferguson. He said to Kent, man, I never did hear from you. I already hired a guitar player. Oh man. Yeah, so I'm thinking, brother, what a disaster this is. My dad is going to die, you know. And f- so this guy, Ferguson, he was so nice, and, he's, and he re- he sized up the situation. And he said, uh, well, what else can you play? I said, I, I play harmonica. No, uh, I don't need a harmonica. Can you play drums? And I thought, say no, and you're done. Say yes and figure it out.
0: I can I mean, now. I thought, Charlie McCoy says I can it. now. I didn't know
1: about drums. <laughs> and I said, yes, but I don't have any. He said, we'll get you some. So wow. I go to Toronto for two weeks with Johnny Ferguson playing drums. And uh, we come back to Nashville and the, uh, <laughs> the club owner from – Toronto calls the booking agent and said, don't ever call me again. This is the worst act I've ever had. (laughs) Uh, So uh, anyway, so they broke the band up. I mean, there was no more gigs and there I was. So I'm living with Kent Westbury and, uh, and then uh, Jim Denny, you know, I started playing harmonica with Kent when he'd write songs and uh, he said, one day he was working on this song, and he said, hey, get your harmonica, play along with this. I think it'll really work. And it was the song, I Just Don't Understand. And uh, he said, man, this is great. I'm going to ask Mr. Denny to let you play on the demo session. So I played on the demo session in about a month. Denny calls me and said, uh, just got a call from Chet. He's recording an unknown singer from Sweden named Anne Margaret, and he wants you to play exactly what you played on the demo. My first session, May 1961, and man, was I was I, I'm so happy that I already knew what to play. Sure. Because you're talking about being intimidated. There's Chet, the Nashville eight. A- oh, and I walked, he went with me and introduced me to Chet, and he said chet this is this is the guy that put in Chet said wait a minute i know you
0: oh he remembered you from the singing <laughs> he audition. remembered
1: i couldn't believe it that's great i said yeah i auditioned for you a couple years ago he said yeah you played a black les paul sang chuck berry wow i said wow yeah he said wish you'd have played that harmonica
0: <laughs>
1: so anyway did the session uh 20 year old ann margaret everyone was distracted believe me
0: i can't even imagine i can't and yeah. you're just and you're what 20 21 years I'm old 20 you're right yeah. there in it oh my
1: yeah so i, I mean it was like i thought i died and gone to heaven you know and sure and then into the session a bass player bob moore walks over to me and he said you free friday <laughs> hey i was i was free the rest of my life sure <laughs> and i said yeah and he said come back here i'm recording roy orbison whoa i was a huge fan of roy orbison really already you know the records he'd made in nashville so far you know like only the lonely and blue angel yeah
0: yeah
1: and so i came back and we did this song called "Candyman," man and the b-side was blue Bayou." and when candy man hit the radio my phone started ringing.
0: Well, sure, that was a huge song, top ten. Yeah, songs. it was huge. Yeah, yeah.
1: And you know, fifty nine years later, <laughs> it's still ringing. What a blessing!
0: What an incredible blessing. Charlie McCoy is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. Country music hall of famer who's played with just about everybody down through the years. And um, do you ever, after all of this, Charlie, just sort of sit back and think, man? I'm a kid from the coalfields of southern West Virginia, and here I am hanging out with Cash and Dylan and Elvis and Roy Orbison. I mean, do, do, do you ever Abs- pinch yourself
1: still? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I'm, I, I said, I said, man, this is this is tall cotton for a kid from Fayette County. Yeah, man. Yeah. Man. Yeah. My grandfather was a coal miner. You know, my mama was a coal miner's daughter.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah. Now. All those instruments that you play, uh, you're best known as a harp player, harmonica player. What else do you still get out and play? I know you still sing at some of your concerts. Do you still? Uh... Yeah, I
1: sing some. And uh, I, the main thing I play extra now is uh, vibraphone. You know, we call them vibes. Vibes, yeah. Play with mallets. Uh, but uh, I've played a lot of different instruments on a lot of records uh, uh, based on Three Bob Dylan albums: uh, uh, trumpet on Bob Dylan, everybody must get stoned; baritone sax on Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison; uh, attuned guitar on Detroit City by Bobby Bear. Wow! It was uh, me and Jerry Reed really the team. He was picking the guitar, and he had to put one hand on the neck, and the, you know the intro's got this thing where the bass string tunes down and then it tunes back up. So I was the only one in the room with a free hand. So I was tuning the guitar. (laughs) Yeah. And then of course, but the truth is without the harmonica, I wouldn't have gotten a door. You know, I I wasn't, I was a below average guitar player, probably not knowing what the Nashville thing was all about. And, uh, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have gotten the door without the harmonica.
0: Hey Charlie, when you play on these songs that that now are sort of the soundtrack of all our lives, uh, and, and literally, you know, songs we've all heard for our whole lives, when, when you're in there and and you've been hired to play on those sessions, do you have any sort of uh, you know like like Spider Man that Spidey sense that you know this is going to be a big one? Or yeah, are yeah, ever,
1: everyone wants to. Sometimes, sometimes there's a feeling in the studio and you can feel it. Everybody in the room feels it. I remember that. I remember that, uh, really two, two times really strong pretty woman was one of those. And he stopped loving her today. George Jones. That was one of those. Everybody in the room was looking around like, wow, this is going to be big. You know, you could tell, I mean, uh, everyone just knew,
0: amazing and and you also had uh you know a huge solo career too one of your albums i think was number one for a while good time charlie was number one right
1: yeah i i was uh you know and i never i never really wanted to be an artist to begin with <laughs>
0: <laughs> you really did but want to be a studio guy a session guy that was fine i
1: really you. did and uh I, so i was working for monument records fred foster one day and he said well first uh i wrote Ken and I and another guy wrote a song and uh, a rock and roll song and Ken said, "You sing the demo. It's not my style." So it was a rock and roll song called Cherry Berry Wine, and uh, 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 a couple about a couple weeks passed by and Jim Denny calls me and said, "Listen, uh, Archie Blyer with Cadence Records heard that and he wants to record you." <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> what? So I did a record as a singer for Cadence. It got to number 99 in the pop charts one week and then dropped out. So I have been in the pop charts
0: okay good for a week.
1: <laughs> and but then Cadence went they decided uh you know that was a great label. They had Everly's, Andy Williams, uh Cordettes, just a lot of great great artists. And in 1962, he put out a comedy album by a co- comedian named Vaughn Meter. Oh, sure. It, it was called The First Family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a spoof of the Kennedy family in the White House. That's right. It was huge. Huge. Yes. Oh, it, it was huge. And and I will never forget, Archie Byer called me and he said, listen, you know about my album here, my Vaughn Meter? I said, yeah. And he said, you know what? He said, I'm going to apologize up front, but I'm telling you what he said. I'm tired. And this is my ticket out. He said, I'm retiring from record label business. He said, I'm so sorry because I thought we really had something going. I said, Archie, do not fret it because I'm doing what I want to do. You know? Yeah. So I figured, okay, that's been there, done that. That's over with. And then, uh, all of a sudden, uh, I'm on a session one day about 63 with Fred Foster monument records. He said, come out to my office. I want have, let's have some lunch. I want to talk to you. Okay. So I went out there and he said, I want you to make some records. I said, doing what? He said, <laughs> he said I don't care. Just go in the studio and be creative. You know, and I, I had a rock and roll band in Nashville too, called the Escorts, uh, okay. with former West with a West Virginia buddy Wayne Moss in it, and uh, we were doing a lot of. Uh, actually, we were the first uh, first combo in Tennessee doing Motown. You know. Oh wow. We we were into the R and B, so we made records for. eight years that we couldn't give away. I'm not kidding you. And, and I would talk to Fred and I said, at the at the end of each year, I said, Hey, listen, I appreciate the opportunity, but this just isn't working. And he said to me, keep looking, you'll find it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't give you eight months in this day and time.
0: That's right. Sure.
1: That, that's right. So uh, anyway, Finally, in 1971, that instrumental broke loose. Today, I started loving you again, and, and, you know, the rest, it's like, all of a sudden, I'm thinking, hey, you know what? This artist thing is not so bad after all.
0: Sure, sure.
1: <laughs> and, uh, you know, so now uh, I, I'm just releasing my 43rd album.
0: Amazing and
1: yeah, forty
0: three albums and you tour it, now still pretty regular. Of course, not right now with with the yeah, pandemic. Yeah, but,
1: nobody's touring right now. But nothing. Happened no, I have. The, I've yeah. toured. Uh, I've toured a lot in Europe, France especially. France and Denmark, the main two places, and then I guess the third most would be Czech Republic. And I've been to Japan twenty times. Uh, but you know, I still I, I only do about even in a peak year, I do about 20, 25 dates a year. That's all. Cause I'm still doing studio work and, and then my wife and I now live in Florida in the winter. Right. So that, uh, you know, so I, we don't do much down there, but, uh, you know, it's kind of like a vacation. Hey,
0: Charlie, let me, if if I can ask you about some of these bold face names that, that you've worked with and some of them are still with us, some of them are not but i i 'd love to get just a, some recollections uh, okay. on those folks because i it 's my understanding that that when you recorded on some of these really big artist uh records, they were actually there it 's not like that today where you might you know be punched no. in later and you you never even meet the person, but back then you actually you rub shoulders with a lot of these folks right
1: they were always there back then because they we didn't have the technology to do it any other way. Everybody was there, the singer, the background singers, and you made the record. That was it. And if if one guy messed up real bad, everyone had to do it again, and nobody wanted to be that guy.
0: Oh, yeah. That gets you real good <laughs> real fast, I
1: would imagine. <laughs> well, that's what this this group of musicians in Nashville were that's what they started here that was so fantastic is that they were all such amazing musicians that they, uh, you know, and, and they, they had this concept about this, what they were doing. And they, you know, they were doing three and four songs that they'd never heard of in three hours, making the record. I mean, that's, that's the way they did it back then. And it was incredible.
0: And you became one of those guys, part of the A-team. I became
1: one of them, man. You're talking about an education. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, all right. Learn so from the best.
0: Tell me about, uh, let's start, you can't get much bigger than Elvis Presley. What are your recollections, your memories of Elvis?
1: Well, uh, I was, the reason we were, I was hired was because uh, it was it was a movie soundtrack, the movie called Harum Scareum. Uh the the movie company had changed the recording dates for the soundtrack. All the guys that normally worked with Elvis, Floyd Kramer, Bob Moore, Buddy Harmon, were all booked already. Well, in Nashville, it's, it's an unwritten law. You don't cancel out on one artist to go work with another one. You just don't do it, you know? Yep. So they told Scotty Moore, who was, you know, Elvis's guitar player, uh, get us another band (laughs) so he hired me to play and uh we were all a little uh you know we didn't know what to expect because elvis had been with these same guys you know for many many sessions and but he walked in the door he walked over to each musician shook their hand and said thank you for helping me and that just you know that's it yeah man this is great And that's the way he was. He was so nice, just couldn't been any nicer. And, you know, at that time he couldn't hardly walk out on the streets. And uh, the studio was his safe place. He was surrounded by people he respected and liked and doing what he loved to do, make music, you know. So it was it was always fun. And I ended up doing. uh, uh, Seven movies. And five other albums.
0: That's great. Wow. With the king of rock and roll. What about Johnny Cash? Tell me about Johnny Cash.
1: He was great. He was like, you know, he was, he was like his own producer. All that stuff that on his records, it's his idea. And the producer was smart enough to leave him alone. You know, it's like this guy knows exactly what he's doing. And I, I I never forget that he did one album with Bob Dylan's producer. You know, they ended up doing a duet and, uh, uh, that girl from the North country and he went on the Johnny Cash show and all that stuff. Sure. Yeah. So (laughs) Dylan's producer was went out, And at the time he still had, uh, Luther Perkins playing guitar and, uh, he goes out and he says. He goes up to Luther and he said, "Listen, I think the tempo is not right." And Luther said, "Go back in there. John knows where he wants it." <laughs> and he was right. Wow. Yeah, he he was uh, fantastic uh, and just had an instinct about his music and what worked. And he was really really nice.
0: What about Dylan? What about Bob Dylan? You know, there's a, a guy that has been uh, essentially a mystery. To most people for the last 60 years, what's he He's like a mystery to, like? to
1: me, too, because he never said anything. Really? I was session leader. My job is to be the middleman between the artist, the producer, and the musicians, you know? And uh, he'd start playing a song, and I'd walk over and, Bob, what would you think if we did this or that? I don't know, man. What do you think? That was pretty much all I ever got out of him. Wow. But he did his biggest album of his career here in Nashville, you know, blonde, of blonde. Sure. Then he did John Wesley Harding, Nashville skyline and, uh, an album called self portrait. And my first album with him was the album called, uh, highway 61 revisited a song called desolation row that I ended up on. Cause I happened to be in New York and, uh, Bob Johnson said, come over. I want you to meet Bob Dylan. And I went over. And he said, I'm getting ready to do a song. Why don't you get that other guitar over there and join in? <laughs> uh, okay. Yes, sir. <laughs> so I played on Decimation Row. And uh, so that's how all that started.
0: Now, Ringo Starr came into Nashville and did an album. And you found yourself on an album by a Beatle. And, uh, and I wonder what what you remember about that session?
1: Well, it was country music. He loved country music. And, uh, you know, he decided, man, I'm going to do, going to do it in the capital country music. And we had a great, you know, a regular studio band. It was really good. And he really enjoyed it really did. And I never forget they were, there was a reporter there from one of the local TV stations. And, uh, they said, Ringo, tell us, Who's your favorite artist? And he said, Kitty Wells. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and probably said it just like that, too. That's good.
1: Yeah, he did. He, he did. He was really nice.
0: You know, as I look through your resume, it's interesting to me that you've played a little bit of everything. People, you know, they're going to think about Charlie McCoy and Orange Blossom Special, and they're going to think about you as the music director on Hee Haw for all those years. But, man, you know, I'm looking at – and I see Ringo Starr to Perry Como – to the Steve Miller band, to Chris Christopherson, to Paul Simon. Is there a kind of, and you talked about you, you played Motown as a kid. Is there a kind of music that you personally are drawn to, or do you like it all?
1: No, I I like a, I love a variety. I really do. And that's what I loved about, you know, Nashville. Back in the early days, everyone used to say, Nashville's just a, just a country music center. That's all they do. And, you know, during that time, the top four artists, four of the top pop artists in the country were doing all the records here. Orbison, Everly's, Brenda Lee, and Elvis, you know? And, and then people were coming here all the time, like Perry Como, uh, Pat Boone. Uh, you know, people from other forms of music were, were coming to Nashville. The big change was after Dylan came, because then the folk rock crowd... You know, it's like Dylan put his stamp of approval on Nashville, and it, man, the floodgates opened. Uh, there's <laughs> so many of those groups, you know. And I played with a bunch of them: Joan Baez, Buffy St. marie Manhattan Transfer, Peter, Paul and Mary, Leonard Cohen. You know, I've just, and there were there were many that came here, and and they had a, you know, Dan Fogelberg. And many of them had a lot of success
0: here. Sure. Charlie McCoy is our guest today. He's a Country Music Hall of Famer, inducted with Roy Clark and Barbara Mandrell. And, and you and, and Roy Clark worked together on, on Hee Haw for almost 20 years. W- what's it like? Uh, tell me about the, that job as music director on that show when you've got guest artists coming in and out every week and you've got your core people there. You know, when we watched at home when I was a kid, looks like everybody's just having a good old time, but that's got to be a lot of work.
1: You know what? It was easier than you think. Really? Because everyone there was so, uh, they were so committed to the project. They all believed in it. And, you know, it's like, okay, (laughs) you walk, you go into work, and you're surrounded by legends to begin with, you know? Sure. And it was like, we only worked a month at a time. It was like a big family reunion complete with, all the visiting, all the stories, all the practical jokes, and at by the, about the time everyone started getting on their ner- each other's nerves, it was over. <laughs> and and you know they had a they had a formula for recording because they did more recording in in the time they had than almost any TV show could do, and they borrowed the the formula from Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. In other words, they never went in and recorded a whole show front to back. Everything was segments and then put together in the editing room later. I see. Uh, we would have a music day. We'd have four artists, two before lunch, two after lunch. They would each do their two songs and do a couple of little cornfield skits, you know, like that. Uh, and then they would have comedy day. Uh, when they moved to Opryland, especially after the after the Gaylord company bought the show, they moved us out to Opryland, which we had a lot of space in that that TV studio. They could set up four of those sets, like the barber shop, uh, the place where the Ronnie Stillman's on the ironing board. You know. Yeah, yeah. And they could set up four of those sets. So they would set a setup. They would light it, get the sound and then go in there and do 13 skits back to back. And that's the way they would do on comedy days. So we we do 13 shows in a month. And then they, so they do 13 skits of, you know, 13 barbershops, 13, whatever. And then it was up to the editing room later to decide. In fact, you didn't even know. Okay, let's say we had Conway Twitty on first thing in the morning and say uh Kathy Mateo on second in the morning. That didn't mean they were gonna be in the same show. Right. They decided all that later.
0: You know, it when you watch shows like Haw or you, you you know see the, the Country Music Award shows, it sure seems like everybody intermingles there. Um, in nashville much more so than los angeles and new york where you're a little more distance apart is it in fact that way charlie i mean do do people was, all know each other back then
1: yes it was exactly that way and especially you know the classic people like uh archie campbell grandpa jones Minnie pearl you know they they had known each other for a long time they were all friends and uh they were all you know they all believed in it and that 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 was the key that everyone that was a regular there really believed in it. And i tell you another one, and I don't know that you ever hear much credit. The girls, the Hee Haw honeys, most of them were aspiring actresses. Right. And whenever we do those skits, it was never them that made mistakes. Those girls were right on the money, you know. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, as, and uh, – You'd say, uh, see because the, the musicians we didn't come in in a in a 30-day shoot. Musicians are in maybe 10 days. Okay. that's all. Now later on, most of the artists, a lot of the artists, started bringing their own band, which kind of diminished the role of the house band some. Sure. But we still did all the picking and grinnings. We played behind Roy Clark on all his songs. And uh, we played, we made up uh, play-ons and playoffs for these comedy skits, stuff like that, you know.
0: When you look back on, on that time, both in, in Hee Haw and then, you know, all those sessions in the 60s and the 70s in uh, the 80s, were there ever folks that, that you met that you were a little bit starstruck or intimidated by?
1: And if so, do you uh, remember any of them? I thought I was going to be with Elvis until he came in and broke the ice the way he did. Um, you know, I wasn't really because I realized that. You know, I mean, okay, these people are here because they're having some success or they want to try it. You know, like I, I tell people, for every star I worked with, I worked with ten you never heard of. Sure. Because Nashville, we did, you know. I've had a, reporters ask me, you just didn't work with everybody, did you? You know, <laughs> you only work with stars, right? I said, no, we, we didn't turn people down because they weren't famous. You know, it was, we just didn't do that. Uh, but yeah, you know, it was, uh, I, I, we've all of a sudden, you know, it you get the feeling that, okay, these guys are stars. They're big and, and and huge at what they do, but we are what we are, and we're good at what we do too, and we need each other. So it was more like a friendship than it was, like for instance, Statler Brothers. Right. Okay, I recorded with them a lot uh, in the eighties and nineties. I took it. I, I took it to. Start putting on shows in Fayetteville to raise money for our town park. The Statler Brothers came to Fayetteville twice. Wow! For me, and uh, actually, the senior league baseball field is called Statler Brothers Field. <laughs> and I had ten Hall of Famers come to to, to Fayetteville. Uh, and that was that was in a day when this country music community was small. Everybody knew everybody. You could talk. You know, it was like you could. T- I, I, one day I asked, I told B- Mickey Gilly, He overheard me talking about I'm looking for an artist for our show this year in Fayetteville, You know, and he he said, Hey, what what are you talking about? So I told him a little bit about it. And he said, When is it? I said, Somewhere around the fourth of July, whenever we can get somebody he said let me look up my calendar he said hey I can do it <laughs> you know that kind of stuff
0: unbelievable it and, is and you know for you our know. listeners that are not familiar with Fayetteville Fayetteville is a, a little town probably 10,000 people or less Oh, you know oh, it
1: like, doesn't have that many it's more like two yeah
0: <laughs> and right there in West Virginia and you get the you know the biggest stars in country music to come in and and help out. That's uh, that's pretty amazing. Charlie McCoy, our guest today. Hey, Charlie, before I let you go, I, I want to ask you, as a guy who who has played so much, you do so many sessions. Still today, you do so many sessions. Um, when I talk to other veteran artists, occasionally I hear them refer to, to their opportunities as a job. Well, I've got a job here or a job there and I wonder if if for you is playing the harmonica a job or do you still enjoy it is it still playing music which is it
1: hey I absolutely still enjoy it I love it uh I'm not so much about uh you know a lot of harmonica players try to develop new techniques try to you know come up with all but I, I'm more interested in this day and time in songs to record you know what what songs work on the harmonica and you know i I make my records like a singer uh i'm like singing the lyrics you know through my harmonica and uh so uh yeah i'm excited i loved i love to make records you know even though uh hey making cds has become an expensive hobby yeah I since the internet came in and killed everything but anyway uh that's another story but i still love to do it and i love to be in a studio with other great musicians you know because boy the the people here are so good and uh and it comes together so easy here everyone bought into this thing that the a-team started in the 50s they've all bought in and uh it's it's such a pleasure to go to work
0: well, it's a pleasure to talk with you by the way if you want to know more about charlie's story uh, we could go on for hours, but you might be well-served to pick up a copy of his, his memoir. The book is 50 Cents and a Box Top, Creative Life of National Session Musician, Charlie McCoy, my buddy. I really appreciate you spending time with hey, me. Hey,
1: thank you. Uh, they can get that at CharlieMcCoy.com. And
0: all kinds of great information about you at CharlieMcCoy.com. Too. <laughs>
1: yeah, my heart's an open I mean, my story's an open book, isn't it now?
0: <laughs> it is. You, you're on the internet, Charlie, you can't hide anymore.
1: That's true. That's true.
0: (laughs) The Big Time Talker podcast brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com. I'm Burke Allen for Charlie McCoy. Thank you so much for listening. Bye, everybody. Okay.
1: Thank you, man.